0: you pray with me. Lord, we are grateful for this opportunity this morning to come before you, to sing praise to you. Lord, even now to pray, knowing that you are with us, that you are a God that listens. Lord, that you are constantly reminding us of your love and Lord, also of your truth through your word. And so we ask that as we sit humbly before your word, that you would open our minds to hear your truth, and that you would open and expose our hearts to receive it, that you would challenge, that you would convict, and that you would encourage us this morning to live lives worthy of you, because this is the good life. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So if I haven't had the privilege of meeting you, my name is Carter. I'm the campus pastor at Crossbridge Brickle, and if you've been attending the last couple weeks or the last couple months, uh, one of the things I want to let you know is one of the beautiful aspects about Crossbridge Church is that we're a family of churches, and so we have other locations. Obviously, we're here in Pinecrest. We have Brickle, Miami Springs, and Key Biscayne, and it's just amazing to be able to do ministry together to be uh, resourcing one another, to be on mission together as one church, and we had an awesome celebration a couple of weeks back for the 10-year celebration. Who enjoyed that? Yeah, Okay, it's better to clap. Yeah, it's better to clap. All the hands went up, that's good, but it was awesome. What a a great celebration here, 10 years in the life of Crossbridge. And if you've been with us uh, starting last week, you know that we started a new series, and the new series is entitled The Good Life, and it's going through the book of Thessalonians, the first book of Thessalonians. It's written to this church in the city of Thessalonica, this young church, and as Pastor Felipe preached last week, this young church has become famous. Become famous not only in their city, but it's become famous in their region and in the whole known world because this church has begun to live out their faith authentically. They bring their faith, though they're in a city that is very hostile to the Christian faith, and there's a lot of tension and temptation to completely abandon it or to hide it, to keep it within the four walls of the church. They have brought their faith into their work, into their relationships, into their families, on business trips, and it has made this young church in Thessalonica, famous for the way that they have lived out the gospel. And so Paul writes this letter to them with his companions, Silvanus and Timothy, kind of speaking into it as well. They help start the church. And he writes this letter because he can't, he can't attend and come see them face to face. And he wants to encourage them. He wants to tell of the reports that he's hearing from all these different people about their faith and how they're living it out authentically And he wants to encourage them and charge them to continue to live this way because they're in a difficult environment in this culture that is very opposite of what they believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we've entitled the series The Good Life because this is what Paul is charging them to continue to live, the good life. And so I was asking myself the question this week, what is the good life? And I did a little research online. I started with the most obvious choice, Urban Dictionary, which said this, the good life mentioned by Kanye West is about living drama and worry-free, do your thing, be thankful for what you have, and take full advantage of everything you do while still improving upon your situation. That's the good life. Simple enough. But I wasn't satisfied. So I went to Forbes. Forbes got to have the good life. So Forbes told me, examine life, engage life with vengeance. Always search for new pleasures and new desires to reach within your mind. Okay, now we're getting there. So then I thought, let me ask Tony Robbins. So Tony Robbins told me very simple so I could remember it. He said, progress equals happiness. You want to have the good life, you want to be happy, just progress. So now we got to examine your life, you got to tap into the potential within your mind, you got to progress, you got to be thankful, you got to find out what kind of new desires and pleasures and take a hold of them. And then I ended with Woody Allen. And Woody Allen said, People say that money is not the key to happiness, but I always figured if you have enough money, you can have a key made. So simple, so true. No, you know, all these things that I'm, uh, I'm listening to you, there's, there's good things here, right? There's good things here that you may say, those, those are good things to, to be thankful and, and, and to figure out who you are and who you've been made to be and, and try to grow and try to expand and, and try to progress. That you want to kind of tap into some of that potential that is within you and, and live without worry. But you know, these things don't make up the good life. We, we be, maybe believe it and we're tempted by it and culture tells us that all these things will in fact uh, create the good life in you. And essentially what culture tells us, our current culture says, listen, the good life is living worthy of your potential. The good life is living your best life. Whatever that is for you, find it, figure it out and achieve it and progress towards it. Whatever pleasures, whatever desires, whatever potential you have in your mind, whatever ability you've been given, you just need to unlock your potential. Tap into it. It's hidden within you. If you just run after and progress towards it, you're going to find the good life and you're going to be happy. And this cultural sentiment, this statement, and these values are not unlike the values that were promoted to this church in Thessalonica in the first century. Because there was a very prevalent philosophy that was kind of over the whole city and would have influenced the people there, and it's the philosophy of Stoicism. And Stoicism today is undergoing a resurgence. All of those quotes, except for Woody Allen that I read to you, come from a Stoic philosophy. Be grateful. Think positive. Let worry and drama just brush by. Tap into your potential. Unlock your potential. The good life and happiness is hidden within you. You just have to figure it out for yourself and begin to progress towards it. These things all come out of Stoicism. And many, many people are promoting this philosophy and and this belief system. And so Paul, as you can imagine, has something to say about that. And so he writes this letter to this church that is growing in their faith. They're living out their faith authentically, but they're living in a culture that is preaching a very different message. It's a very different gospel. They've received the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they're hearing the gospel of your potential. And they're they're struggling with the temptation of that, surely, just as we are. We come here and we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, and maybe you've believed it for years, or maybe you're kind of in the very beginning stages of your faith and you're wrestling through the reality of who Jesus is and what that means for your life. But we're in that temptation, we're in that tension between what God's word says and what the Christian faith says, and what the culture says. And so Paul wants to kind of tap into this. What does it mean to live a life that is worthy, to live a life that is good? And so he begins in the very first verse here in chapter 2. He says, for you know yourselves, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you was not in vain. And so he wants to start, and he wants them to remember and to recount What they were like, Paul and his companions, when they came and planted the church, when they met these young Christians, when they shared the gospel with them and helped to launch and to to set this foundation of the church. And he says, listen, we did not come to you in vain. Meaning, it wasn't just like the next stop on our list. It wasn't just another box to check. We actually arrived with a lot of intention, and it was very meaningful. You're important to us. He says... You remember, in verse 2, that though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So right before Philip and his companions arrive in Thessalonica, they were in Philippi. And what happened in Philippi is that they were, they were falsely accused, they were held without a trial... They were stripped naked, they were beaten with rods that were tied together, and then they were falsely imprisoned. And immediately after this, they go to Thessalonica. And Paul is saying, listen, you can know that we did not come to you in vain. It wasn't just like the next stop on our list, because why in the world would we come to another city that is hostile to the faith? When surely we're going to be persecuted again, the same thing very likely will happen same thing happened in Philippi. It could happen here. We would have taken a break. We would have waited. Maybe we would have just skipped Thessalonica because it's dangerous. It wasn't just an easy decision, but we came with a lot of intention. And if you want to know what our motivation was, he says in verse three and four: "For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak." Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Paul says, listen, here's why we came. We came with intention. It was thought out. We came even though what we experienced in Philippi could very possibly be what we experienced in Thessalonica. And yet we arrived because we've been entrusted with the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ has changed our lives. It has given us a calling. God has made it clear to us what he wants us to do. It was not optional. God's calling on our lives was to go to city to city from town to town and to share the good news of who Jesus is that people might receive God's grace, be transformed and churches might be planted that can reach their cities and their region. That is our calling and that is why we have arrived. We didn't come for anything else. Any fame, any fortune, any personal glory. We came simply because we've been entrusted with the gospel. And what you're going to see here is that Paul is wanting the church to remember how he spoke and how he acted with them. Because he wants to differentiate his example and Sylvanus and Timothy's example from the example of the philosophers of the city that are preaching a very different message. I want you to see the difference, Paul is saying. We came with intention, even though it was risky, and we've only simply come because the gospel has been entrusted to us, and it's changed our lives. This is why we arrived. So he says, Remember in verse five and six, remember that we came we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we see glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands. As apostles of Christ. You see, here very clearly he's wanting to differentiate himself from the, ver- the people in the city that would preach wisdom and preach truth and try to tempt these young Christians into kind of living a completely different life than the life that God has called them to live. Because they, philosophers of that day would arrive in the city and they'd, they'd speak with words of flattery, meaning they would be insincere in the way that they spoke They would use false praise, and they would seek to align people to their way of life and to their message to manipulate them so that they might take power from them. So they're great communicators, very well liked and loved, and you felt like they loved you, but it was insincere. And it was just to take power from the people so that they might become famous. They were motivated simply out of fame and fortune and personal glory. He says, we didn't arrive like that. We were not insincere. We didn't give you false praise. Nor was there a pretext for greed. We didn't arrive because we wanted to get money. This would have been a fear too because Thessalonica was a very affluent city and the church certainly had some people that were very wealthy. And what would also happen with these philosophers in their city, Stoic philosophers and others, is that they would treat themselves as the people that had wisdom. They had truth. They've written a bunch of books. So you need to listen to them. And you need to give them your money to help sustain and support their lifestyle, their lavish lifestyle of comfort and of extreme wealth. And so they'd look to align people with false words and flattery to manipulate them to take power from them and take money from them. Because their motivation was fame, fortune, and personal glory. It was all for themselves. And Paul says that was not us We didn't make demands upon you, we didn't give you false praise, we were not insincere, and we certainly were not in it for the money. But remember, he says in verse 7, that we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. The word gentle here is not actually the Greek word, Uh, the correct translation is "infants." He says that we were infants among you, and that kind of sounds weird, so you understand why they would you know, translate it gentle instead of infants, but I think Paul's wording here is very intentional. He's saying we were infants among you, and what he means by that is not simply that we were gentle, but that when we arrived in the city, we didn't throw our weight around. We arrived humbly, almost weak. We didn't put demands upon you even though we're apostles. We arrived like infants, not throwing our weight around. And we were like a mother who cares for her own children. Now, this would have really hit home because culturally what would happen oftentimes is that if you had a child, when you gave birth to the child, you would have hired and contracted a wet nurse. And the wet nurse would take the child from birth, feed the child, care for the child, educate the child, and stay with the child all the way through the years until the child went off on their own as an adult. And so Paul is saying here, we are not like a wet nurse that is contracted to care for the physical, emotional, and spiritual health of a child. Instead, we're like a mother. We're like a mother with you who cares for her own children. You are family. We're not hired help. We're not contracted to get something out of you or some payday at the end. We are like a mother who cares for you deeply. You are our family. There is intimacy in this relationship, and our love for you is genuine. And Verse 8, he says that we are so affectionately desirous of you that we are ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves because you very, you become very dear to us. We didn't just come in and just tell you a message and then leave. We didn't just like kind of convince you and persuade you of the gospel of Jesus Christ and then just leave town. We were ripped from you. We were forced to leave. We love you. We're not hired help. You're our friends and our family, and we miss you. He says in verse 9, you remember this very specific example of, kind of proves this out, is that our labor and our toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. That when we arrived like infants, not looking to throw our weight around and being affectionately desirous of you and sharing our lives with you like a mother would with her children, that we came not for fame and fortune and personal glory, actually when we arrived, we didn't even ask you to help sustain our livelihood. You see, Paul in 1 Corinthians says that it's the church's responsibility to sustain the livelihood of the pastors, to care for them, And yet, when he arrives in Thessalonica, he recognizes he's in a very fragile situation. Surely some people in the church were well off, but there was also some that were really struggling in poverty. And those that were well off, their businesses were most likely going to be affected because of their new faith. People were not going to do business with them anymore. That promotion they were waiting for is going to be lost. Business deals are going to not go through. Because they're going to be outcasted. They're going to be persecuted. And so Paul says when we arrived, we actually worked to sustain our livelihood so that we would not place that burden upon you. You can tell we were not in this for any kind of personal glory, any kind of fortune, any kind of fame. We are very different than all of those other people in the city that tell you that they have wisdom, that they have the good life, and they have the answers to your life. You remember how different we were. And he closes in verse 10 through 12, and he says, You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, also like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you, here it is, to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Here is where you see why he's writing this whole section here in chapter 2. He says, we were also like a father. We encouraged you. We challenged you. We charged you to continue forward walking in a manner worthy of God. See, Paul understands what they're facing as he's been gone. He knows. He's heard the reports of how they've been living their faith out authentically. They've been living for a gospel movement. They've been taking their faith into their work, into their families, into their friend circles, on business trips. Everywhere they go, they're living out their faith. They're sharing their faith with others. And he knows the temptation of the city, which is don't live that way. Live for yourself, live for fortune. Live for fame. Live for personal glory. Figure out what your dreams and your desires are and run after those. That's the good life. Figure out what your potential is and progress towards it. That's going to make you happy. And Paul says, remember why we came and what we preached to you. The good news of Jesus Christ that a life that is good and a life that is full of joy and happiness is actually living a life worthy of God. And we modeled it for you. He wants them to see the difference between how they lived versus how others in the city that preach wisdom and truth live. And he says, look how we lived. We weren't in it for any of those things that are promoted. We modeled for you what the good life looks like. And you see, this city that they lived in, this pluralistic city, where Stoicism was a big philosophy, but there were many others. You see, here was what would have been the cultural value You can create your own spirituality and religion. You can choose any of the many deities to follow after. It's kind of choose your own adventure when it comes to faith. So if you want to follow after Dionysus, you can follow after Dionysus, and it's going to affect your life because whatever you follow after and whatever you worship will affect your life. So if you follow Dionysus, your life and your values, the good life, will be about partying and drinking because she's the goddess of wine, the god of wine. Or if you follow Aphrodite, then your life is going to be about sex, free sex, and engaging with anyone, how you want, when you want. Because that's what Aphrodite promotes. Or if you want to follow after Apollo who is the god of music and poetry and medicine and archery. He's essentially the god of like a primetime TV show on NBC at 8 o'clock where there's a good-looking, handsome doctor who is very good at his job, but he also shoots archery for fun, and he plays music, and he loves this woman, and he writes her poetry notes all the time. Like, it's like that kind of life. But see, whatever you worship and whatever kind of gods you followed after and whatever wisdom and truth you believed was true for you, you'd apply it to your life and then the good life would become whatever you created. Whatever you thought was good for you. And Paul is saying, don't fall into that. You're to live a life worthy of God. That's the good life. You know, you begin to think to yourself, Man, I don't know if I'm really like tempted by all of those things. Like they're tempted to live for fame and for fortune and for personal glory. And you may think to yourself, I'm not really like interested in getting famous or I don't need a large fortune, even though it seems like everybody nowadays wants to get famous through social media and YouTube. But you're like, I'm I'm cool. Like I I don't, I'm not, I don't think I'm gonna get famous and I don't really wanna get famous. I'm cool with my life. I like my neighborhood, cool with spending time with my family and my friends and just my career kind of going forward as it is, comfortable. But you see that that last part of living for personal glory is really seductive. It's a really strong temptation because when you live for personal glory, it means that you make your dreams and your desires the chief driver of your life. It's what you want what makes you feel good. It's what makes you look good. It's what's comfortable and safe and good as you define it. And that's really tempting. And I think one of the reasons why we're so tempted to live for fame or for fortune or for personal glory, and to kind of believe that the good life is just unlocking our potential and progressing towards it, or it's just simply falling after the things that we believe are good for ourselves, and then believing that if we just kind of check those things off the list, our life will get better. The reason that's so tempting is because we've kind of lost or softened a very important doctrine of the Christian faith, one that I believe that Paul understands to his core and he constantly speaks about. And the Thessalonian church as well observed and believed in and was rooted in their hearts as they modeled it in the way that they lived. And it's a doctrine. When I tell you, some of you are going to like shift in your seat a little bit because it's uncomfortable. Some of you are going to squint your face because you're going to be like skeptical, like, oh, I don't know about this. Some of you are going to roll your eyes and some of you are going to nod like, yes. But oftentimes when we nod, It's a very shallow understanding of this doctrine. And it's the doctrine of sin. Who's excited? What a great morning. Talking about the doctrine of sin. We like to smooth it out. We like to make it a little bit more palatable. Don't want to really deal with it because it's not culturally acceptable to talk about the doctrine of sin. Which very simply could be said that... It's the belief that human beings are fundamentally flawed and broken from birth and God is unhappy with our fundamental flaws. Fundamentally flawed. You're like, well, I don't know about that. That, that like feels a little bit off when you hear that. It feels like not the doctrine of sin, but maybe the doctrine of repression. That you need to repress something. That, that you're bad and your desires and your urges are bad and so you got to repress them. And we don't like that because you need to begin to follow your truth right the good life is what you determine so we don't want to repress anything or maybe it sounds like the doctrine of self-hate that you have to look at yourself and view yourself as broken and flawed and that that would lend to you kind of hating yourself and and we want to hear that that you're you're perfectly good as you are and don't let anyone get in the way of your happiness or maybe it sounds like the doctrine of discrimination, because if, if people are fundamentally flawed and broken, then you can discriminate against other people that are too sinful for you or are living in sin. But see, this isn't the doctrine of sin at all. It's not a doctrine of repression. In, in, instead, it actually, it's a doctrine of recognition. It's a doctrine, of, a doctrine that helps you to recognize what is actually good. It's not a, a doctrine of self-hate. Rather, it's a doctrine of humility, and it's not a doctrine of discrimination. It's quite the opposite. It's a doctrine of understanding and patience and love because you realize that we're all in the same boat. Like we're all fundamentally flawed and broken. But it's really difficult for us to, to swallow, to believe fully. And I bring this up for two reasons. One is because when you don't really understand and believe, in the doctrine of sin in its true form it can become dangerous in two ways one you'll never come to the feet of Jesus and really look for salvation and for healing and for forgiveness why because you can't be saved from something that you don't think is a big deal if you don't think that sin is a big deal and you don't think that you're fundamentally flawed and broken why would you ever go to Jesus as your savior to save you from what Jesus instead will just become someone that can give you some like, helpful truths that you can apply to your life to make your life a little bit better instead of Jesus being your Savior. And secondly, is that if you don't understand the doctrine of sin, you're never going to live a life worthy of God. Why? Because why would you ever go to God for a good life? I mean... You have the ability within yourself to fix yourself. You don't need to go to God. Maybe you can apply some things. Instead of going to him and saying, I'm fundamentally flawed and broken, and I believe that you're actually truly perfectly good, and I want to lay my life before you and ask you, what's next? This is why it's so important to understand the doctrine of sin. And sometimes when we think about sin, we immediately think about the acts of sin, right? The moral acts that are defined as wrong. So we think about adultery or embezzling money or physical or emotional abuse or lying to get your way. And certainly these things are sin, but sin is much deeper than that. Sin is a system. It is a system that cannot be fixed. It is a condition under which you and me live. Here's what sin is. How many of you have been snorkeling or scuba diving before? Raise your hand. How many? Most people. You live in Miami. If you haven't, you need to. It's like kind of a prerequisite to live here. Snorkeling or scuba. Even if you just go in the pool. Try it in the pool. It's really fun. But you know one of the most frustrating things when you go scuba diving or when you go snorkeling is you put the mask on and you go in the water and it fogs up. So you get out and then someone told you to spit in it. So you take out the mask and you spit in it and you rub it around and somehow this is supposed to work. So you put it on, but you go under, then it fogs up again. You're like, oh my goodness! So you get out again. You take the mask off, and somebody has that like stuff that you can squirt in. Have you, you know somebody there's like some kind of like liquid? It's like a special liquid. So you spray it in the mask, and you rub it around. And now it's finally going to work. So you put it on, and you go into the water, and it fogs up again. And no matter what you do, it fogs up. This is a system of sin. No matter what you do, you are going to be fundamentally flawed and broken. Your life will always fog up. There is no special treatment. There's no special thing that you can do. There's no procedure. There's no one, two, three, four step, and then you're going to get better. That's what sin is. It always fogs up your life. Always. Fundamentally flawed and broken. It is pervasive. It is unavoidable. But we don't want to hold on to this. Because we want to be optimistic about human nature. Here's what we want to believe. We are all good until we aren't. We're good. We're all good in our core until we aren't. And the reason that we're not good is because someone else has done something to corrupt us. Some other system, some other person, some other thing has come into our life and affected our life, so now we have to deal with those effects. But because we are fundamentally good, we can work ourselves back to perfection. We can work our, our way back to the good life because we're capable in and of ourselves. And yet, the Christian faith in the gospel tells us that we are fundamentally flawed. We are not all good until we aren't. We are broken. And we're in need of fixing. And this is who we are. That beneath every broken system is another system. And that's the system of sin. But we want to believe that that's not there. So we want to believe that if we can just fix education... Or if we can fix government, or if we can put in the right laws or amend the right laws or get our candidate elected, then everything's going to be better, and people are going to improve. They won't. Now listen, I think it's important to engage these things and to to bring improvement, to be engaged politically and to be engaged in education and to work towards justice and and reformation and growth because it can produce better effects in people's lives, but it's not going to fix the system. The system of sin is beneath every system and therefore every system will always be broken. Always. And I think one of the reasons why we don't feel this the way that it was felt in the past in the life of the church is because we've rebranded the experiences of sin. So, traditionally speaking, people would recognize that they're sinful, that they're fundamentally flawed and broken because they experienced the effects of sin, the feelings of sin, things that reveal to you that there's a glitch in your system, things like anxiety, things like fear and shame and guilt and a weight upon your conscience. But we've rebranded these things. We we place these things within our control. So if you feel anxious, then there's medication. If you feel guilt and shame, then you can practice mindfulness. If you're fearful, then you can just think positively. Practice positive thinking. I want you to not mishear me. I really think that many of these therapeutic treatments, when necessary, are helpful. Medication and mindfulness and thinking positively. I think many of these things are actually gifts of a merciful God to us that live in a broken system. They're gifts for us to, to live in this system that we can never fix. The problem is, though in rebranding all of these things, we've caused ourselves to believe that all of these things that reveal our brokenness and that reveal that there's a glitch in the system, that we're fundamentally flawed, we believe we can control them now. We can fix them. We can cure them. And that's not true. You may be thinking to yourself, what does this have to do with living a life worthy of God? Well, listen... Unless you see yourself as sinful, you'll never truly give your whole life to God, who is good. If you don't understand and experience the reality of sin, you won't be motivated to live a life worthy of God. Instead, what you'll do is you'll live a life worthy of your potential, whatever you've set up to be the good life, and then you'll bring some of God into it, where you believe it applies, Instead of looking to God and saying, I'm broken, I'm flawed, I know it, I experience it on a daily basis, and I want to give you all of me. Whatever you define as a life worthy of the calling that you've given me, I want to give you all of me. My time, my talent, my treasure, my mind, my job, my family, my friends, my business trips, everything I want to give it to you. I want to live worthy of. Of you, God, the life and calling that you've given me. You think to yourself, why would Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy not go and flow with everybody else where they could have achieved so much fame and fortune and, and personal glory? Why would they forsake that? Why would this these Thessalonian churches compromise their friendships and, and their careers and many things for their faith? Because they understood who they are in light of who God is. They understood that they're broken and they're sinful. And they need healing, and they need forgiveness. And that the good life is not defined by what culture says or what you just believe inside. The good life is actually defined by God. And when you seek it, you find the joy that is found in it. Jesus has this really powerful statement when he says this. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." You see, if you don't recognize that you're sick, you'll never go to Jesus as your physician. You know, when you're sick and and you don't have any medication in the cabinet to fix it, you're not trained in it, you don't know what to do, there's no steps, what do you do? You go to the doctor and when you go to the doctor, you say, doc, I don't know what's wrong, but I'm giving you my life, I'm placing my life in your hands and I'm asking for you to heal me. And when the doctor heals you, There's two things that happen. First, you say, thank you. And then you say, what next? How do I got to change my diet? Do I got to start exercising? What do I avoid? How do I live the rest of my life? You've given me a new life. You've brought healing. Now, how do I live? You see, when you recognize that you're fundamentally flawed and you're fundamentally broken and you can't fix yourself And you experience the reality of your brokenness and sin in your life. And you come to Jesus and you realize that he's given his life for you so that you might be healed. And you come before him broken and you're still accepted and you're loved. And God pours his grace out upon you. And you come to know the forgiveness and the mercy of God. The first thing you say is thank you. You know what the second thing you say is? what's next? How do I live? You've given me a new life. What do I avoid? What do you want me to do? What's my calling? This is the good life. Francis Chan has this great quote. He's a pastor and Christian author. He says, our greatest fear should not be a failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. The good life is living a life where you're running after Jesus as your great physician who heals you and who begins to provide you a picture of what it looks like to live the rest of your new life for Him. Will you pray with me?